You're listening to the Tenuto Podcast, presented by 4th Street Records. I'm your host, Kevin Lynch, and here we go! Alright, welcome back to our second episode of 2018. Today is Tuesday, March 13th, and you're listening to the Tenuto podcast tenuto means hold the note full value it's an accent mark over a a note in music you typically find in music and the goal of this podcast is for me and all of you out there all you listeners you tenutonians to become our full value as music educators whether you teach singing band strings general music music technology i mean whatever you teach Musically, this is the podcast for you. And even if you don't teach music, you want to listen, go ahead. I, I love that. There are teachers at the schools I work at that just listen to the podcast for fun. Um, so go ahead. I mean, you can learn so much from a simple conversation with anyone. That's kind of the goal of this podcast. And I really, really, truly believe that every week we interview one of the best teachers in the country. We get new ideas that we can use in our classroom. Uh, Last week we interviewed NAFME Band Director of the Year, Emily McNeil. And if you haven't listened to it yet, you can go ahead and do so on Apple Podcasts or on our website, tenutopodcast.com. If you want updates on who's coming on the show or when the next show is coming out, then join our Facebook community and become a Tenutonian by liking the page. It's called Tenuto Podcast. Just search that on Facebook. You'll find us. We would love, love, love if you did that. This week, we have an amazing guest. He actually grew up in England, and he currently works at the company Music First, but he went to school um, studying the voice. He was a singer in college, and he, he got into composing a little bit. You'll hear about that in the uh, in. T- the interview Um, but I think you're really 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 gonna like what he has to say he's even got this like really sweet English accent Uh, it's got you holding on to like every word he says I mean you'll get to hear it later it's pretty cool Uh, first English accent to have on the podcast you know so that's kind of a big deal Uh, and it was honestly I mean I'm not gonna lie it was a privilege to talk to this guy I got to talk to him a little bit at VMEA it was the Virginia Music Educators uh, the conference there and I mean very intelligent guy knows what he's talking about with music technology really really cool interview Um, but first i want to get to our segment what is going on in my classroom so at my school we're currently gearing up for assessments It's, it's uh some people like to call it festival you know it's that place that you prepare really freaking hard for and you stress yourself out for three judges to listen to your band and they give you a rating based off of what they've heard. Uh, It's a huge deal for band directors, at least, and I'm sure the string directors and chorus directors, uh, it's also a very big deal. I mean, people are telling you basically if you're doing a good job or not, Uh, three judges at least. And uh, last year I I observed this teacher, I went out, I took a day off and I observed this guy, he's a really, really, uh, you know, amazing teacher in the area. And he had this sign in his room and it said something like, there are 150 days or 150 rehearsals until assessment and and the number was an erasable marker and he would erase it every day and i mean it's it's crazy people go crazy for these assessments and people don't like to be told that they're anything less than at the top of their game and i i think that this feeling is you know it, it 
stems back to wanting to do really really well for your students and for yourself and I think every director in some way or another has at least a little bit of an ego um, and I think the important thing is we don't want that ego to take over and we don't want to be so obsessed with how we're doing you know we don't want that the only reason we're doing well is to feed our own ego and to and to feed ourselves but uh, for, for those of you who don't know what this is um, basically you get judged on a bunch of different musical things like tone technique, musicianship, and all that stuff. And then you get a rating from each judge based on how you play it. So you play three songs, you do a march, and then two selections. Um, typically, eighth grade goes grade three music, seventh grade goes grade two. Uh, and then we take our sixth grade and they go grade one. Um, and then the judges will give you a score. If you get a one, that means superior. That's the best you can do. Two is an excellent. Three is good. And and the higher the number, the the worse the judge thinks your your band was. Um, I'm gonna read you a quick passage from this book from Joseph Also Brook. It's called Pathways, and he says, "Unfortunately, it's so easy to head in the opposite direction and become obsessed with contests like this festival that I'm talking about. This assessments." It has become the commonplace structure and, and to operate an entire program around the sole purpose of achieving, achieving superior ratings. The quest for ones has replaced the mission to provide students with a unique form of knowledge, growth, and optimal experience. This is the tail wagging the dog. A hunt for first divisions alone is more often than not a self-serving ego-building mission by the director disguised as motivation for high musical achievement. And you know, that's that's exactly what I was saying we need to avoid is is that we want to get ones for, for myself and I'm just going to drill this music until it gets 100% perfect. No, I mean, we want to make sure that this music is a knowledge growth experience for the kids. Um, Gary Zukov reinforces this view. He says, to compete means to strive for something in company or together, to aim at something, to try to reach something, to seek after something with others. If the something that you aim for is prestige or notice or a gold medal instead of the tin medal, it is your personality that is motivating the competition. You are striving to empower yourself at the expense of others to assert your superiority over another or over other human beings. You are striving for this external power. By striving for this reward and that reward, you ask the world to assess and acknowledge your value before you can value yourself. You place your sense of self-worth in the hands of others. You have no power even if you win every gold medal that the world can produce. You know, contrary to popular belief, sacrificing everything for superior ratings is not the way to keep students interested in music making, nor is it the magic motivator for high levels of retention and musicianship. Spending week after week drilling notes on festival pieces just to get one ratings is deadening to students. I mean, students don't like doing that. You want to keep it fresh. Um, to motivate your students means to keep them engaged. So just think about those kind of things. I mean, I know we all have egos. I know we all want to do well. But don't just do it for yourself. And remember to keep the kids engaged. That's something I've been trying to do a lot of because, I mean, I'm in my second year. 
I want to be doing well, I want to be getting these grades, but I have to remember that it's important to keep the kids engaged. And I mean, if you're doing that, if you're keeping the kids engaged, if you're if you're structuring your lessons so that they're learning something new every day, that assessment rating is gonna take care of itself. I promise you that. But that's what's going on. We're getting ready for assessments. They're next week. Um, any middle school directors out there that are curious what I'm playing, I'm doing Flight of the Thunderbird by Richard Saucedo. Uh, that's a really, really cool piece. You might want to check it out. I'm also doing Dolce and Dance by Gary Fagan. And then A March of Streets of Madrid by John Moss. I'm also doing a few more, but those are those are the ones I'm really excited about. So check those out if you're curious. And... Let's kick it to the interview with Music First Zone, Robin Hudson. All right. I've got Robin Hudson here from Music First to come on the podcast, talk a little bit about himself and his uh, company that he works with. He's the education manager. So thank you so much, Robin, for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Delighted. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, what was your path like to where you are today? Okay, well, you can probably tell right away that I talk a bit funny. <laughs> so I was born in London and uh, ended up, uh, was at Oxford University. I was a choral person through school, was very fortunate to get incredible stuff when I was a kid. I was uh, sang with one of the best sort of boys choirs in England, and it meant I ended up working with people like Leonard Bernstein and Bing Crosby. Uh, so that was all great. Uh, left Oxford. Uh, mucked around in London as a musician for uh, about 10 years and then uh, had a chance to join Sibelius right at the beginning, the company Sibelius Notation, just at the very beginning of the whole breakout of Sibelius when they were in Cambridge, England. Um, mm -hmm. And I spent about three years with them in England. And then uh, I uh, kind of made made them give me an offer I couldn't refuse and went to the U U.S. instead in 1999 wow. with Sibelius and ended up as an American citizen. So I ended up with 13 years with Sibelius, um, the last three of which I guess were spent once we'd merged in with DigiDesign, and, which is best known for a program called Pro Tools. Okay. Uh, so at that point, I was doing Sibelius and Pro Tools and M-Audio and lots of other things. I was basically education evangelist, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, running all over the country, visiting schools and universities. And yeah. then uh, in 2009, uh, I left and joined Soundtree, which is the educational arm of Korg, who make keyboards. And we were doing piano labs and fun stuff like that. And in 2012, I was invited by Jim Frankel, who's the founder of um, Music First, to come over to uh, work for Music First. Our parent company is a very large music publisher called Music Sales Group, uh, who, oddly enough, it's funny how things come full circle. Uh, music Sales Group is a British company, ultimately. <laughs> oh, funny. wow, that is funny. Yep, and funny enough, they were the first major client of Sibelius back in the day. Wow. We wrote some technology for Music uh, Sales Group, um, which ended up being a, a score reader that you could use online called Scorch. Okay. Uh, that was uh, which you know still used today, I think, um, which was primarily designed, I think, for music sales group in the early days. 
So I've been a, I've been around the um, houses a few times. Sure. And, um, I also started doing music technology. I'm I'm quite old now. I started music doing music technology. The first time I did a sequencer, I guess, was 1985. I guess um, on an Atari computer. And I was also a teacher for a while. I, I taught high school music technology in the 90s before I joined Sibelius. Okay. So, so did you know at that point when you were teaching high school that eventually you wanted to go off in, into music technology? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was always um, – I mean, the first time I ever used a sequencer in 1985, it kind of blew my mind. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to be, uh, you know, in the right place at the right time. For example, I worked in a recording studio in the late 80s mm -hmm. in, in London, and we, uh, we were working on the first ever digital audio stuff. I remember Sting's second album, Nothing Like the Sun. I, was, I went into the studio when they just finished doing that, and it was, there was no tape, and it was just audio. This is 1987, 8-ish, I yeah. guess. Wow. And, um, it, again, blew my mind how you could have sound waves uh, with no tape um, that you could manipulate. And we had a thing called a Fairlight Music Computer, which was the state of the art back in the day, $50,000 worth. We had a Synclavia direct-to-disc recorder, which was a $400,000 piece of equipment. Um, stuff that you could get at Walmart nowadays for $50 yeah. <laughs> was, was state-of-the-art back then. It could play eight notes at the same time. It could play eight sounds at the same time. Yeah. And it but MIDI really made a lot of that stuff possible, and then the development of digital audio. Man, it's so it's so amazing how times change and how things like that were so amazing back then, and now you can get it at Walmart for fifty bucks. Yeah, I I, I always say I was doing a clinic on this only last week in uh, South Carolina, and I said to people, you know what, the good news is that you still need to have talent. Right. Nowadays, it's never been easier. When I was teaching. Uh, high school kids how to do recording we could record half a second into our computer and um, and we thought we were gods uh, <laughs> and nowadays you know if i turn on music first i can record for you know 120 minutes yeah uh, before i crash my web browser but uh you know it's never been easier to do incredible things with technology but you still need to have talent i'm pleased to say right right well, that's awesome. So you said you had been given an offer to move to the States. Uh, was that a tough decision for you, moving moving countries? Oh, no, I wanted to. Okay. I was I was ready. I was 35 years old. And it doesn't, I mean, not everybody would grasp it like that uh, because you're, you're leaving everything behind and starting again. And I moved to New York City in 1999 and um, I wanted to see the whole country. You grow up in England and you, and you listen to all these records and you see all these movies and I just wanted to see the country. Yeah. And uh, it was a great chance to, to travel all, all over. Yeah, sounds like it was a great, a great decision for you. Um, and then you ended up being a part of the team that started Music First in 2012. Uh, yes. So yeah. what, what was that like? And, and what pushed you to leave Soundtree or wherever you were and start doing Music First? Well, it's a very, we have a very good team and all of us at the team are sort of industry veterans. I think pretty much all of us were either at Sibelius or Soundtree or Smart Music. So it's A, it's a brilliant team that we have and it's always about the people and we have incredibly inventive uh, people developing stuff for us. And secondly, 
Uh, it was, it's nice to work for um, somebody who isn't going away anytime soon, a big music publisher, so they understand music. Uh, it's not we're not some kind of weird startup bunch of nerds in in a coffee shop somewhere. Right. Um, and uh, the the we were given at Music First a very open brief, really to do anything we liked to do something cool for music education. So that chance does not come along very often. Um, and uh, the the thinking that Jim did, uh, Jim Frankel, when he started the company was. He realized a couple of obvious things. The internet is not going away and the cloud is not going away. So our, our whole basis of life is that we think that you should be able to do stuff in the cloud and that with things like Gmail and Hotmail, why can't you do the same for music? And that's basically what we're doing. Right, right. And cloud-based, I think, is a big term or a big phrase that you guys use and that's your big selling point. Um, for people, because I, I work with a lot of music teachers, and I know a lot of music teachers are kind of technologically challenged. They don't really know what that means. Could you explain what cloud-based means, why it's so important for people to know about music first? Yeah. Uh, well, we don't really want you to have stuff on your hard drive anymore. We think that's a bit 20th century. Um, I, for one, have had a hard drive crash with thousands of files on it, and they've been you know zapped into uh, non-existence uh, so we love the idea that you can do stuff in, uh, in securely on a remote server not lose your work be able to switch computers but perhaps most importantly be able to access what you're doing on any device so right now uh, in t what year are we 2018 yep. uh, there are I, I lose track of time <laughs> there are there are five main operating systems. There didn't used to be. When I started, I started before Windows and Mac. Uh, but um, <laughs> but there are five at the moment, Windows, Mac, Android, uh, Chrome, which is uh, the, the operating system or Chrome OS that runs Chromebooks, and then the whole world of iOS, which covers iPhones and iPads. So we want you to be able to have the same exact experience on any device, including a phone. Um, albeit a phone is not a great sized screen to be doing complex music notation, for example. Yeah. But anyway, we want kids and teachers to be able to access stuff from anywhere at any time. Because, you know, I grew up with expensive computer labs in schools and they're brilliant, except they cost a ton of money. And when the bell rings at the end of the school day, somebody locks the door. You can't get in until the next day. Exactly. We think that's a bit ridiculous because especially if you're in the realm of practice as well as creativity, I think you may well do your best work outside of the school hours. So why can't you uh, be able to address all this stuff when you're sitting somewhere comfortable and quiet um, outside of the school hours? So um, that's what you might call the flipped classroom as well, if you've heard that term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I want you to just pretend I'm a fine arts coordinator in a, a wealthy county that wants to buy music first. I mean, can you give me your sales pitch on what it is and why every music teacher in the country should be using this? <laughs> well, it's not expensive, so you don't need to be from a wealthy school district. Perfect, yeah, it's even better. <laughs> uh, so the, the idea is we went around the world 
looking for cool stuff that works in the cloud. That's the obvious thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so we spent about a year doing that. And we discovered and ended up with about 10 software programs um, that all work in the cloud. And the other thing we decided was it's not enough just to give people software. We want to give people content, lessons, tasks, assessments, quizzes, and all that kind of stuff so you can hit the ground running. So um, plus everything's got to work on all five operating systems at the same time. Right. So we went around and we found some ear training, some theory training, two sequences, a notation program, uh, an assessment program where you can sing into it or play into it and it will give you a score. And then some fun general music stuff like a history program um, and some stuff for kids who are just starting out or at middle school. And then uh, a raft of stuff for the elementary kids. So we have some, um, for a good example would be a, a program called Groovy. So that used to be, Groovy music is part of our suite. And that used to be, back in the day, used to be software that you'd loaded on your hard drive. Uh, brilliant piece of software from about 2004. And uh, the first thing we did actually when we started Music First was go and contact Michael Avery, who's a bit of a genius, who developed Groovy and grab him and uh, bring him into our fold and then ask him to develop a cloud-based version of that same exact software. Right. Um, it's like GarageBand for little kids, if you want to think of it like that. Yeah. Um, intelligent, safe, educational, and fun for young kids to work with loops and um, musical fragments right. and um, build them into really exciting and interesting songs. Mm -hmm. So. We, we live in several different worlds. We're not just creative. We're also all about assessment because obviously that's the hottest thing these days. It wasn't, it wasn't as hot as it uh, – assessment wasn't the main thing 20 years ago, but it is now. Sure. Um, and also, as I say, we really want engaging content as well. It's not enough to give a teacher who is hard work, hardworking as it is a piece of software and just say, go and figure it out. Uh, that's not really acceptable in 2018. So mm -hmm. what we do is we we give them a raft of content and tasks already set up so they can really hit the ground running with the kids. Yeah, sure. And I, I've noticed that, I mean, it's not just for a high school band director. It's not just for a high school. It's not just for middle school. It, it encompasses all the ages. Uh, I think that's really cool, too. Uh, I personally, I use Sight Reading Factory quite a lot. I know that's one of the things that's offered. Um, what's a program that's offered that maybe a lot of people don't know about, maybe for like a middle school band? Well, we've got programs. We've got a program called O Generator, which is a very interesting program. You, you can uh, go to musicfirst.com and play with all of these things and just request a demo. But one of our software suite is uh, O Generator, which is for kids who want to make their own beats and loops, learn to compose, learn about world instruments. Yeah. It's got videos inside it. And it takes a very different approach to creativity. Uh, we've had success with kids on the autism spectrum because of its rather unique interface. Another one that's like that, that is uh, unusual, is a program we have called Focus on Sound. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, 20 years ago, there used to be a CD-ROM, uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember it, called Microsoft Musical Instruments. And um, it was an interactive guide back in the day of every instrument in the world. And we sort of did a version of that when I was with Sibelius called Sibelius Instruments. But um, Focus on Sound is a much more 21st century version of that. It's an interactive digital encyclopedia 
of every instrument in the world, every musical term in the world, with tests and lessons built in. So it's one, a one-stop shop where you can find out about instruments as well as figure out whether you want to play them, uh, watch videos, and take tests and, uh, you know, improve yourself. Sure, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I mean, all these things sound really interesting. I'm, I'm actually, I'm on musicfirst.com right now looking these over. This is really, really cool stuff. Um, awesome. So, technologically speaking, uh, what do you think a band, the future band room in 25 years, what do you think it's going to look like in band, chorus, orchestra rooms? Do you think it's going to be the same, or do you think we're going to adapt to different things? Wow. That, well, that's an interesting question. I suppose, uh, well, let's, let's handle one of the elephants in the room. Is, is music, uh, is, is paper going away or not? Yeah. That's, that's a, so that's a whole can of worms in itself. Uh, so far, um, paper has proved to be very resilient. In other words, we still need actual pieces of paper to go on a stage and play our, uh, play our concerts with. But if you take we haven't talked about note flight on this so far. So note flight's part of our suite. And yeah. as a notation program, it's actually owned by Hal Leonard. Mm -hmm. So um, Hal Leonard have got all sorts of interesting plans for the future of um, uh, printed music. So uh, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that um, uh, conventional paper could go away in 25 years' time or certainly be used a lot less. A lot of it depends on the cost of the tablet devices. So right. if you if you can get a tablet down to, let's say, I don't know, 30 or $40, uh, that's pretty resilient for a kid to use, and you can put, you know, sheet music onto that screen and be able to transpose it super easily and annotate it super easily, then I think one of the things that could happen in a band room is that uh, paper's gonna go away. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, like we were talking about at the beginning of the interview, how what, there was something you were using and then now you can get it for 50 bucks at Walmart. I mean, it's possible that in 25 years, the price of tablets is going to go down a lot. Well, look at Chromebooks. I mean, we, we, yeah. love, we, we love Chromebooks. And uh, I've got one uh, just out of reach here, which is, probably costs nowadays, I don't know, $69 or something. Uh, it's just a window onto the internet. Uh, there's no hard drive. And that makes some people panic, but we love that because we're in the cloud. So, yeah. um, if and and so if, if you can already do that at a pretty affordable price, I think the idea of a of a device being in every kid's hands. I mean, clearly they've already got their phones, but the phones are not big enough to display notation. They can be used for recording yourself and submitting your recording, <coughs> which we already do. Yeah. So. I think that's one of the big changes. I, I mean, I can't comment on whether the actual literature that people play uh, will vary, um, because obviously band programs in parts of the country are quite conservative and traditional. Sure. And, um, I personally would love to see a bit more modern and uh, current music being played, so we, st we perhaps bridge the gulf. Uh, so, for example, in England, where I'm from, uh, music education is much more contemporary and uh, much more sort of holistic. And I think, for example, if you went to a show, you were just talking about VMEA. Mm -hmm. uh, if, and I just did New Jersey MEA last week. Okay. If, you, if you went to a show like that in England, um, this might frighten you to death. Every concert would be conducted by the students. Um, and every concert would have music composed by the students being performed. 
And I would like to see a bit more of that, personally. I know that's a bit of a radical suggestion. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. And the kids, um, they, I mean, if you treat kids like, like professionals like that, that they, they're running the concert, not you. You're just a facilitator as a teacher. I just love that. That's uh, amazing. I've and, never even thought about that. Yeah, there's not enough of that goes on, I, I think. I'm just wearing my sort of British-American hat now. And I, <laughs> I, I would like to see a bit more guitar going on as well. Mm-hmm. Although it's quite hard to teach a room full of kids playing guitar. But yeah. it is the most popular instrument in the Western world by factor 10. Mm-hmm. And I, just, I don't always know that there's enough of that going on. So I think my a question of whether my, it's a dream or a vision, um, I certainly would like to see more kids... Um, being involved, including ones that don't necessarily even read conventional music, uh, being involved in a program, because you have a whole bunch of uh, uh, musicians out there that probably don't want to be a conventional musician. Um, we uh, At Sibelius, we think that, um, we used to think that 95% of all professional musicians, in fact, don't read music. Um, Paul McCartney doesn't read music. Uh, he's still a musician. Yeah. And can we find space for somebody like that in the music program? And I'd also like to see music education merge a bit more closely in with things like digital media and broadcast journalism, because we're telling a story. And I think you can make yourself more um, important as a teacher by stressing the digital media aspects of what you do. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. I mean, you're opening my mind. That's really, really cool ideas that you're that you're sharing. It's it's made. I'm gonna get a little nerdy on you. Um, I used to be a Boy Scout, and one of the cool things about the Boy Scouts was it was all done by kids under 18 years old. There were adults facilitating, but I mean, everything was done by by the kids. And I think that's a really, really cool concept to have kids conducting pieces, kids writing pieces. I mean, why not? Especially when we've got this kind of software that makes it makes it easier for us yeah yes i the the one thing that needs to change and this is really uh um uh, a comment about the universities i think not enough music educators uh get enough time to to learn how to compose themselves um one of the problems is that um and i nobody's got any definitive statistics here but we used to think back in sibelius days that only 5% of all music educators have ever really written a piece themselves. um, Why is that, Um, given that music education is very much uh, perform, listen, compose? um, There's not enough composing going on, and I think teachers themselves need to be more comfortable or or assisted to be more comfortable um, in composing. Of course, they will say there's not enough time because there's a lot of pressure to perform and be assessed. So we've got to find that link and that and that blend so we can reach the kid that plays guitar uh, that is probably a self-taught musician and bring them into the music program. And and in so doing, you know, tell, uh, teach them something about music. Uh, nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, as music educators, we're spending a lot of time trying to find pieces that fit our ensemble. And that, and, you know... If we could just write our own piece, it's a, it makes it so much easier. I don't know. Yeah, I think a lot of states are now doing composition contests. I just think it would be nice to see a bit more of it going on because it is fun. But I agree with people who say it is quite you, – you can't just give kids a blank piece of paper and say be creative. Right. Uh, that's not how the world works either. 
So, for example, one of our pieces of technology at Music First is a thing called Inside Music, uh, which is hidden in our content area. Uh, but it's, a, it's about a year's worth of lesson plans teaching kids how to compose using videos, starting with real basics like melodies and steps and leaps. But that came out of some research that's been going on, well, it's active research that's been going on in Vermont for years, a thing called the Vermont MIDI Project, uh, which is now called Music Comp, uh, music-comp.org, I think it is, um, is an amazing uh, um, project where kids compose, they're mentored by composers, and it always leads to an actual uh, uh, concert where the kids' music is performed by real people, uh, usually members of the Vermont Symphony Orchestra. And so we love, we fell in love with this. Uh, wow, yeah, I'm just checking it out now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so that, that's an example of how you can really do it well and outstandingly, and it's life-changing for those kids uh, to have their music performed. And they step up, and they will give direction to the symphony orchestra. They'll tell, they'll tell the French horns, you know, you're playing that bit wrong, or, or you know, uh, you're, uh, please observe my dynamics that I wrote. I love that. I, 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 sometimes these kids are as young as eight years old, yeah. and they're instructing a symphony orchestra how to <laughs> piece. That's hilarious. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's amazing. Very cool stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, we've got a couple things left on the interview, uh, and this is something we do with every guest. So I'm going to go ahead, and this is, like I said, this is something we do with everybody. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to just go ahead and bash smart music. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> I'm not allowed to do that. I'm a good, I'm a good Christian. Uh, all I would say is take a look. We'll, we have... Uh, the first alternative to smart music that's ever really been available. It's called Practice First. And I simply say to anybody, go and check it out. I think we're very excited about what we're doing at Practice First. And um, like anything, it was like Sabotis and Finale. If you have two players in the game, they usually both improve as a result of competition. Mm -hmm. So um, go and take a look at Practice First and uh, draw your own conclusions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this has been such a great interview. I feel like this is exactly why I made this podcast is to, to get the ideas from different people and, and you have definitely not disappointed. So we're going to finish here with the rapid fire session. I'm just going to give you random questions. You go ahead and say the first thing that pops into your mind. Okay. All right. Ready to go? Yeah. Here we go. Do you prefer to listen to music or play music? Oh, I can't answer that. That's 50-50. Sorry. Okay. 50-50. <laughs> Well, what's the last book you've read? I am currently reading Tom Jones's autobiography, uh, if you know who he is. Tom. It's not usual, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right, what's your favorite tool from Music First? Uh, oh, I love them all. That's like asking you to pick your favorite child, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but I'll join what everybody else says. Sight Reading Factory is an awesome tool. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite too. Uh, have you ever been skydiving? No, and I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, since you're from England uh, or the UK, who do you think is going to win the World Cup this year? Are you a big soccer fan? I certainly am. It's, well, I don't really care about international football because okay. I, I support Chelsea and we're multinational. Uh, <laughs> it's certainly not going to be England. Um, so I, I support the team with the most Chelsea players in it, which I think is Spain, but it might be Brazil. Okay. Uh, and how does it make you feel when Americans call the sport soccer instead of football? 
I've gotten used to it. I'm acclimated, as you guys would say. <laughs> as we say in England, acclimatized. Acclimatized. All right. All right, here's my final question I ask this to everybody. If you could go back in time to when you graduated college and ask yourself or give yourself one piece of advice, what would you say? Uh, think before you speak. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, Robin Hudson, thank you so much. That was great. Real pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. All right. Thank you so much to Robin Hudson again for doing that email. Guys, make sure you are checking out the Facebook page. I'll let you know who's coming on the podcast next. Thank you and have an amazing, amazing, amazing Tuesday.